This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com, where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Atlanta, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hello and welcome to a Tuesday evening edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Long time friend of the show. I think I can do that because Ty Hildenbrand is here, and Ty went back to the first time he appeared on this podcast, which was back before it was even this podcast. It was cut to the chase from like five years ago. So I feel like I. Have been listening to you and uh, know have known about you for a very long time. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm I'm glad I didn't alienate you too much the first time we spoke. So this is good. No, absolutely not. Uh, Solid Verbal has always been one of my favorite podcasts, and um, I am very happy to hear the news um, that you guys revealed last week in the podcast. Can you shed some more light on what all that means? I know you talked briefly about it on the pod, but can you ex- uh, maybe just shed some light for the listeners on my end uh what what is the future for solid verbal and what what's changing yeah i mean for the for the present i don't think much is changing but you know and and you know this i mean i know uh, your podcast just like ours is is a passion project first and foremost and you do anything long enough you you come to a point where i think you, you you always think in the back of your head what can we make this what 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 can we what can we do? What is the full potential of this project? And Dan and I have have had that in the backs of our minds for a long time. And so, what I think the news is, broadly speaking, is just that we're we're committed to really throwing our weight and the weight of some really smart people that we've um, added to our team to to try and develop out the show as best we can, the brand of the Solid Verbal that we've spent over a decade now building. We're, we're going to work really hard to steer into what we think has made the show popular and what people like about the show and find ways to scale it up. And, um, you know, that could mean any number of different things. I, I don't know if we really know at this point what that's all going to entail, but um, looking, looking into the future, um, I, I think it's a commitment to, to what's been good about the show, what people like about the show and um, what we think can help make the show even better. I'm excited, um, but I, I I need a true or false answer here, Ty. And you, you okay, be honest, true sure. or false? We will see Ty Hildenbrandt and Dan Rubenstein chopping 
it up with uh, Brady Quinn and Urban Meyer <laughs> on our television screens. True or false? I mean, I can neither confirm nor deny that that would be the case, but I I would probably bet no if I were a betting man, and I, I love am. That it's a probably because that's not a definitely. That is a you. Never it's know. not well. Not what is definitely right. I mean, we're mm-hmm. living in the time of the pandemic. There's all sorts of stuff going going sideways here. So I suppose anything's possible that I'll say that is not, that is not in the short term vision for where this goes, but mm. certainly if they decided they wanted to give us a call, um, or email us at solidverbal at gmail.com, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we, we'd be willing to listen. Sure. It'd be good. I like that studio show. Urban Meyer being awesome on TV was a big surprise for me. was not expecting that. I like Urban <laughs> Meyer. Seems interesting honestly kind of an underrated coach at this point in time just because of how it ended at ohio state that people i think are just like oh ryan day just picked up right where he left off and is maybe even better so urban meyer actually stinks um i don't know i i think uh, that'd be cool we need to i'm trying to figure out where we could put the solid verbal guy on television <laughs> for college football and i feel that was the first thought i had it was like oh i could see these two with the with that group the matt liner brady quinn group you get to talk to brady quinn um i don't know if you'd be mesmerized throughout the the show but yeah, I mean, you're right though. Urban Urban's a really good, a really good TV guy in, in an unexpected way. And the I think the the seminal moment for me last year watching him on that Fox broadcast was seeing the like weird, understated passion with which he broke down X's and O's on their tiny field. You know, he was really into it, and he did a good job, I thought, explaining to the layman what exactly was going on. You know, I mean, we've made the joke on our show. I can't tell you how many times now about how, how much value you really get from Rob Stone acting like he's a weak side linebacker on the small field, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's just not the best setting to try and describe something, but urban did a really good job, uh, week in week out explaining really complicated football concepts that often go over folks heads and bringing it down to a level that at least like, okay, that kind of makes sense. So that, that was very unexpected. He did seem to enjoy himself out there. And, uh, I enjoy that show. I don't know about you. I, I, I think like they it. do a good job. Yeah. Between, between Brady and Bush and, and Leinert, um, it, it's sort of like a weird triumvirate there of former players that, uh, as a Notre Dame fan, it's weird because I was uh, used to watching those guys kind of duke it out in the field. Loss of the push. Yeah, and with the push, and I was at that game, so for me, really? I still, yeah, yeah, I was there, and I, so I kind of have like mixed feelings across the board of seeing like Quinn and and those two guys on the same set, but I think they do a good job and have really good chemistry, so uh, I enjoy the show. I'm worried what the pandemic has done to his workout routine, though. Uh, <laughs> is he still going to be as bulky? He could pro- if he if he skipped Arms Day, like eight weeks in a row, he'd be fine. Like he might actually look a little bit better because some of those suits were more of the snug European style. We call that the Tim Tebow look, the Tebow look. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Tebow he does this all the time and it's, it works for him. I mean, it worked out, uh, last I checked, but, uh, yeah, certain guys have that. And they, if you have it, why not? That was one of, that was one of the rubs on, on Quinn when he went into the NFL, that yeah. he was too much of a workout warrior and that, I remember some of the, some of the commentary around him was that, well, he needs to throttle back on the, on the weight room. So I don't, I, I don't know. To what, 
What's that? What was Jimmy Colossus? Oh my god. Let's not go there, okay? But my I won't my get over thing- that by the way. I was very annoyed that Jimmy Clausen did not turn out to be a good NFL quarterback. I was all in Jimmy Clausen train. I was very pro Jimmy Clausen. He was such a weird looking person and he was the uh, the Clausen family is just really interesting to me and he didn't work out. I was very upset at he, how bad he was in the NFL. Just as like a Notre Dame fan and so the Quinn thing with the arms and the workout regimen all, all that aside I I was blinded by fandom. And I was convinced that he was going to be a steal, that he was going to be really good. And it, it didn't work out. You know, it, it clearly didn't work out. And Clawson was another one where I, I think I was, I don't know, I was certainly blinded by fandom, but there, there was so much, so much like, uh, I don't know, the accolades for Clawson coming out of high school and what he could do at Notre Dame. And he actually had some really good seasons at Notre Dame too, to, to kind of back him up and it another instance where it just didn't, it didn't really work out. If you go back, I guess you can go back to Quinn, even though he didn't really work out in the NFL. But if you go back over the last 15 years of Notre Dame quarterbacks and really take a look at who translated to the next level, you will be sorely disappointed. That's, that's been like the one position that they have not been able to crack and get a real gamer in there who can, who can help transcend and take them to the next level. If they, God forbid they ever find that guy. I'm curious to see what happens to the on-field product. Well, I've got good news. Um, Drew Pine has the eyebrows that I think uh, might be able to mm. let off. Have you looked at those? <laughs> Drew Pine, I have. Have you seen I have. those eyebrows? Yeah, they're robust, aren't they? They are ridiculous. And I love that Like his comp is just maybe better Ian Book, where I, I just, I love that maybe this is Notre Dame's identity now is athletic, inaccurate white quarterbacks. That, that might be my, their new aesthetic. Who knows? Well, books, but bo- books problem is not that not so much that he's inaccurate. The, the deep mean, ball. Like yes. Of his passes. He was uh, the deep ball, here. the deep ball. Yes. Okay. The deep ball. He, he was, he was the beneficiary of some big bodied wide receivers who could go up and get it. Are you making the case um, for Ian book on this podcast after what no, you no. said about him all? Last no, 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 no. I am not in the book club. I am not in the book club. Okay. You know this. Yeah. Don't put words in my mouth. I mean, I don't know where you're going mouth. with this, so I'm concerned. No, I can't even talk. I'm not flustered. No, I am not a member of the book club. I think he's a very serviceable and good college quarterback my issue with him and it might have more to do with the offense. We'll see what happens now under the tutelage of one Tommy Reese, but it, it, he was not good enough with the deep ball that they could take chances. And so a lot of what he did was the short underneath stuff that didn't really stretch a good defense. And they, against the better teams back themselves into a corner because of that they didn't have much of a running game this past year. So a lot of it came down to book and when they found a defense that could cover the short stuff, force the long stuff, and also take away the run game, it was it was trouble. It was a lot of him deer in headlights trying to run around. And he's he's mobile. He can use his legs, but um, I, I personally would like to see him stretch the field a little bit more and add that dimension to his game. So he's he's limited as a college quarterback. He's good enough as a college quarterback. I don't think he's good enough to kind of make them a, a national championship, a true national championship contender, but he he's good enough to get the job done in most cases. Well, you mentioned Reese and Brian Kelly, obviously that really likes him and you're moving on from the chip long era who could forget, but 
Um, it's not just Reese. Like they're they, like you have your running back coordinator. What is that role they call for Lance Taylor? Like he's the run, like run game coordinator, and then you have the former Rutgers offensive coordinator in there with McNulty. Um, how does that work? Is it still just Reese's show or is it they all three have input on what plays are called and Brian Kelly too? Like, how do you think this is actually going to work? <sighs> That's a really good question. I don't, and it's the popular question too. And a good one. I, I honestly don't know. And like how many times have we heard it before where a coach says, you know, I'm turning over, turning over the play calling duties. And then four games in, it's like, well, maybe I'll call, uh, I'll call some, some, some smaller grouping of plays. And Georgia fans, listen up. It, it seems to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a seesaw thing throughout the course of the year. We'll see. I mean, Tommy Reese is only twenty eight years old, and <laughs> he's he's got he's got good coaching stock. He comes from a coaching family. I, I think he's a he's a he was a smart player. He's another one who was limited athletically, but. He he's he knows what it takes to be a coach. He he's very highly regarded in coaching circles. So Notre Dame faced an interesting choice where they I think more didn't want to lose him than wanted to hire him, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And he was the the trigger man in the bowl game. He helped call the plays in the bowl game. I think Brian Kelly liked what he saw. He was instrumental in some of their recruits getting them to South Bend. And they decide they're going to take a chance on him. So we'll we'll see what happens here. Um, this is this is a grand experiment. I I hope that he brings some more creativity to that offense and find other ways. down the stretch, it got a little stale with what Chip Chip Long was calling for him. And so hopefully Reese can open things up a little bit and and find ways to use book skill set to to greater effect. But um, that is a very good question, Chase, to circle back. I do not know the answer. I suppose we'll find out uh, if and when we have a 2020 season. Yeah, I mean, I it doesn't it doesn't help just not having the spring and not having like their Notre Dame is a team that very much could have benefited um, from more time and this pandemic not happening. They're a team that um went through a lot of changes and i also think it's interesting that they fired chip long after the best statistical season in brian kelly's tenure like 2019 by all accounts was a more explosive notre dame offense even with the downfield issues than we've seen in years past and he still got the boot um yeah my you know my sense is that it was it it may not have been a statistical thing it may have been a a personality type thing i don't know you know i i don't know the extent to which anybody would would admit that from the Notre Dame side, but you know, you hear rumblings and it, it may have been more of a personality conflict, like just a change of scenery is going to benefit both parties. And, um, you know, Chip Long goes elsewhere and, uh, you know, is doing his thing and, and Tommy Reese is now the man. You, you touched on this a little bit on, uh, the solid verbal, but I want to ask you if you could kind of explain and to the listeners, like, how Notre Dame is uniquely affected by the pandemic schedule changes, like a independent school. Yes. They play an ACC schedule, but not a full ACC schedule. Like what affects Notre Dame differently than like, let's say Georgia this fall. Well, you know, I mean, Notre Dame is probably the most prominent independent team. And as you said, they play 
um, largely an ACC schedule. Six ACC teams are on that schedule. So if the ACC plays, you, you know, Notre Dame has a good chance of playing at least those games, but they're not limited to just the ACC. They've got some teams from the Pac-12. They've got a team from the Big Ten. They've got a team from the SEC on there. It's actually a, a well-balanced schedule just in regards to which parts of the country they're hitting and and the teams that they're playing. So um, college football being this collection of tribes that it is definitely puts Notre Dame in a, in a strange spot. Now, it does look as if with each passing day, we're going to see football. I, I'm pretty confident we're going to see it in some form, but it, you could very easily envision a scenario where the Pac-12 decides that it's not going to play, or maybe they're going to play their own season in spring. These these are things that have been talked about. I don't know how likely, but certainly that would affect a school like Notre Dame, where suddenly there are, there are some games that they can't play. Um, if Notre Dame is in a weird spot where everyone is starting their schedules late. Um, you know, you look at Notre Dame's schedule and you ask the question, well, okay. Um, I guess we're not going to Ireland to play Navy. They probably won't anyway. If they start a month late, what happens to a game against Arkansas in early September, uh, a home game, maybe not the best home opponent, but still an sec non-conference opponent, a game that, uh, I think they're excited to, to have, um, so it's just tricky because their schedule is different. And, you know, though they are a very popular school and uh, a moneymaker in terms of ratings, how they fit into all of this is is obviously a little messy because they're not officially part of a school, part of a conference, excuse me. Uh, we'll see. I, I mean, I, I again, with each passing day, it does seem as if things are going to go off more normally than perhaps we expected even four weeks ago, but, um, they're, they're just, they're different. They're different by design. And this is one of those instances where it could come back to, to make life much more difficult for them. It's going to be so interesting to see like the dichotomy between like Texas A&M home game this fall versus like Oregon, because I think it's going to be completely different venues. Is that fair? Would you, would you bet on something similar? Well, sure. And look, this is just sort of where we're at right now as a country take football out of it, but we've got different States doing different things. And, um, I, I don't see any way that doesn't trickle down to yeah. everything beneath the States. Right. So we've seen some of the data that, um, you know, Gene Smith is trying to use the modeling data that he's trying to run against Ohio stadium to figure out if they can put 20,000 or 50,000 people in a stadium. I, I think it stands to reason there could be schools um, out West that maybe aren't comfortable putting fans in at all. One of the questions that we posed on our show was a school like Wake Forest, which their stadium has like 31, five capacity. And if they packed it in with 20%, that's like 6,000 people. Does it does it make sense for a Wake Forest to spend the extra money to put all sorts of extra precautions in place only to get 6,000 people in the stadium? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think part of the great unknown here is that there, there really isn't like that unifying force that's going to tell all of college football what they, what they must do. It's going to be very segmented, very fractured, and it, it'll be interesting. You're right. I, I honestly have no idea um, 
you know, what, what the fan situation is going to look like at a minimum. Yeah. I mean, all we can do is really hope for the best and that these ADs and presidents, um, make the right decisions, but it's just interesting that like you listen to what the West Virginia president says versus what the Cal Berkeley president might say. Like, it's just, it's going to be different. And I, I, I have no idea what college football is going to look like the pro game. We have a pretty good idea. College. I just, I don't know. Um, speaking of things, I don't know what it's going to look like. How would you suspect Notre Dame is going to look different offensively this fall? We talked about Reese a little bit, but like in terms of the on-the-field product, what do you think is going to be the biggest, most glaring change that we see with the Notre Dame offense in 2020? That's that's a good question. So let before I before I go there, let me let me build on the pandemic point for a second. I am curious to see what some, well, what every team looks like. I do a college football podcast, but I'm curious to see how the pandemic and how weird circumstances affect teams. And I think Notre Dame, if, you know, no one's rooting for a public health crisis, right? But Notre Dame is in an interesting spot here because they have a lot of veteran leadership. They've got a quarterback who's going to be a three, a three-year starter in Ian book, love him or hate him. He's got veteran experience 27 and three. Thank you. They've got a couple guys on the line who are 50 year seniors or other guys who have a lot of experience along the line. That's a good place to start. And I, it, you know, running back and, and wide receiver, I think to some extent they're, they're sort of starting over that. That'll be question, question a and B for them on offense, but they have that veteran leadership on offense. And so as we look forward now into the season and, and especially with, with a new offensive coordinator, um, I would expect given circumstances that he tries to keep it simple early um, and tries to keep it as, as um, I don't want to say dumbed down, but, but just straightforward as he can, knowing that circumstances are going to be weird and it, it may be difficult to install anything new. And then hopefully over the course of time, we get more of a glimpse on on what the Tommy Reese offense is going to look like. Part of the reason why it's hard to answer that question is because the, the wide receiver position is is really kind of an open book. Like we don't know. Chase Claypool's gone. He was like the primary target. Miles Boykin. Like these guys, they're just not there. And what the offense looks. What's that? Well, yeah, and I was going to mention, like, well, there is the wild card there, right, which is Kevin Austin, and I was going to ask you about him. Like, there's a lot of unknowns, and there's a lot of guys coming back that are unproven, but Kevin Austin's, like, the, the big banger bus guy, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's just so many questions about that that receiving core, and then the running game is something that they really need to get something out of, I think, to help insulate Ian Book, and Tony Jones Jr. to some extent was underrated a year ago. He, he was underrated kind of his whole career, but um, I, I'm curious to see if they can introduce a guy like a Chris Tyree, who's an incoming freshman, really highly regarded. If they can get a little bit more out of him, I'm, I'm kind of banking on, on that being the case because I don't, I don't get like the warm fuzzies looking at Jafar Armstrong. Like that just <laughs> Avery Davis is a converted quarterback and um you know, there's some question about whether or not he's even going to play running back this year. Like maybe they'll bounce him out to receiver if they need a guy or he could even play defensive back. Like it's there, there's all sorts of stuff that 
I think makes it really weird for the Notre Dame skill, uh, skill position groupings. And that just makes it really hard to figure out like what Reese is going to do with them. We just don't know. We know he's got a good foundation to work with, with book, with that line, but out wide and in the backfield, it's really anyone's guess. Your best guess. Who's more likely to have a breakout season, Austin or Tyree? I'm going to say Tyree. Mm. Uh, I know he's, he's kind of like the white whale in Notre Dame circles. Um, just because he, he comes in with such regard and it does seem like a position group that's open. The thing is, it's not that Notre Dame doesn't have receivers. It's just that it doesn't strike anyone at, like outside of a guy like an Austin. Um, you know, there, there are other names that are, that are interesting. Um, and so to me, it seems easier that a guy like Tyree would, would bubble to the surface than even Austin who's good, but he's got to compete for time with guys like Michael Young and Lawrence Keys and, you know, a whole host of other guys, Javon McKinley, a 50 year guy. So there, there's, there's some more traffic at wide receiver that could make that rise more difficult, but I, I like him. I do. I just, if you're giving me a choice, I'm going to pick Tyree. How important is the O-line all coming back for an editor name this fall? Seems important, right? I think really important. Um, you know, again, if we're, if we're thinking of this in terms of a weird year where maybe it starts late or maybe they can't have normal team meetings and it's just good to have a veteran group up front that you can count on. They should have a really solid line with a lot of experience that that should make life easier for Tommy Reese as he tries to flesh out what the rest of this thing looks like. Um, it's, it's, it's important. And, you know, especially when you look at some of the teams that, that Notre Dame plays this year, um, you know, Wisconsin first week of October, Wisconsin always is good in the trenches. They're always good in the trenches. Um, we've got a Clemson game. I think first week of November, Clemson's going to be good in the trenches. You think Clemson will be good this year. I know it's going out in a limb, right? <laughs> it's going out in a limb. You, uh, the point is just, you look at the schedule and it, it will benefit them greatly as it always does to have a good offensive line. Um, I, and certainly as they start this thing off, as they get into October against a, a good opponent like Wisconsin, um, that who knows what situations will be like come come first week of October. It I would rather have a good line than not. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the bigger questions with a team like Georgia who's transforming their offensive line. They have a new offensive line coach. They have this new offense. Like, It is definitely a good year to be uh, – I, I just – O-line, I think, is the underrated stability part that like, I look at season to season. It's just like, who's bringing back who? Who's doing what? Like Tennessee starting all five stars in their offensive line this fall. Like I'm very like interested in like, what that looks like and how much that helps Jared Garantano. Um, I don't know. It's an underrated part of, part of the game. Um, when you look at the schedule and you're forecasting what Notre Dame is going to be this fall, where do you, where do you fall? Where is your Ty Hillenbrandt Notre Dame fandom? fall but also where does ty hildenbrand serious college football analyst fall serious college football analyst oh gosh um big time now you're gonna be uh, am i okay you're gonna be on the sidelines with bruce feldman on fox on saturdays we're gonna see okay the the tag team we're gonna see uh uh, all that right and then what you confirmed uh yeah um all right the schedule so there are four games that are are concerning to me they've got Wisconsin at Lambeau as of now at Lambeau, who knows what the schedule looks like, but 
they got Wisconsin. That is, by the way, I hate when they do the neutral site. The neutral site, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan either. They've got the Wisconsin game first week of October. They've got the Clemson game first week of November, and then the back half of their November is just loaded. Home against Louisville before on the road at at USC. Now you could say what you want about Louisville and USC, but Mikhail Cunningham scares the crap out of me from Louisville. And I feel like another year under Scott Satterfield will have that, that program tuned up. Like he did a really good job in year one. So that game scares me, especially a week before a rivalry and a trip cross country and then USC ever the wild card, but Keaton Slovis is now firmly entrenched as the guy. And we know that USC is never short on talent. They haven't developed it, but they're never short on talents. That's a losable game. and has been in the past between those four games. I think we'll we'll get our answer on the Notre Dame season. So I probably range anywhere from like eleven and one on the Uber ultra or ultra optimistic side to nine and three um, on the thought that maybe Notre Dame drops the Clemson game and the Wisconsin game in addition to either Louisville or USC. So that's your range. If we come down in the middle, we'll say ten and two. Is that a win for most Notre Dame fans? Are they are they content with ten and two? No. Yeah. Does that no. make Reese or not Reese uh, booked like the all time Notre Dame wins leader? I don't. He's got to be getting close. I don't. Right? I don't know off the top of my that head. Ruin your like just Notre Dame fandom if if Ian Book was the all time wins leader. No, be. I mean, I no no. The okay. answer is no because he's. Like I said, he's a good college quarterback. He's not going to be playing on Sundays. He's going pro in something other than sports, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing he wrong with Notre that. Dame in 2023. Could I mean he could be working under Tommy Reese? Yeah. Who knows? He he's a very good college quarterback. He is limited, and he's won a lot of games. Notre Dame has has had a great run here under Brian Kelly. To your point, I, I Notre Dame fans are disappointed with anything other than a. Playoff berth at in time. Um, that is he got the job done. He's definitely been a really good leader for the team and has the confidence of his teammates. So no, I, I would I would feel happy for him, um, both as a as a fan of the team and fan of college football. I think he's he's at least given them some stability at quarterback. Which be before him, you have to go back a ways before you can find find a, a three year consecutive starter. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a, it's just interesting because like it seems like all the the great all time wins leaders for different programs it's like the one that nobody wants to remember like jake Fromm's gonna be like a uga just like him aaron murray guys like that but like stafford it's not in the record books in that kind of category it's just more of like the talented ones are the ones who don't usually break those records so i'm always dubious of like all-time wins leaders at uh power five programs because i'm like that was just because you were there longer than everybody else because they were better and they left um I'm no. nice. i will still maintain the best notre dame quarterback in my like adult maybe even like all-time viewing experience is still the guy i will ride for till the end of time would you get who would you guess is my all-time notre dame quarterback in my lifetime in your lifetime um 
Wow. Uh, that you would ride for. Like one game, it's just out of all these quarterbacks, like I would pick to win me one game of any of the quarterbacks. You going Kaiser? I am not. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. Not a Kaiser guy. Was never a Kaiser guy. Um, I don't know. Who's your guy? Everett Golson. Really? Everett Golson till the end of time. That's like the most underrated like gamer. I, I will ride for Everett Golson. Hmm. Very disappointed he was, how the Florida State stuff unfolded. Yeah. He was, ta- I mean, do you want to talk about inaccurate passers? That that whole offense in 2012 <laughs> was him snapping the ball and running around until he could figure out what to do with it. Um, that's part of the reason I loved him. It's just the... He was fun. He was a wild card. And he he came in with a lot of excitement because he was a freshman starting at Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, I mean, got played in a national championship. So what what can you really say negative about him? Um, definitely, uh, <laughs> that definitely did not work out beyond that, uh, that campaign, by the way, Ian book is 10 wins away from being the most winning oh quarterback. God, so in if they the hit game. the 10, if they hit yeah. your 10, he breaks the record. Yeah. So are you going to be rooting against it? Are you rooting for nine and three this year? Ty? No, I'm a Notre Dame <laughs> fan. I'm rooting for 12 and 0. Okay. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I think 10 and two sounds about right. 11 and one. I think I would be more optimistic if they had a full non pandemic situation going on with this new offense and new people in there and just a new receiver room. And I don't know. I I would just feel a little bit better if that were the case, but I would be shocked at like nine and three. I, I guess I wouldn't be shocked at nine and three. I would be shocked at anything below that. And I think Brian Kelly deserves a lot of credit for steering a program. That yeah. Like the one to four and eight. One, yeah. Yeah. I one of, one of the more interesting theories I've seen at teams that have veteran leadership and teams that just have crazy skill talent. Like if you're lucky enough to have both, that'll position you better coming out of the pandemic because while it, I think it was Lincoln Riley who was quoted as saying this in, in one of the ESPN pieces that it was really just that you're, you're going to see from a coaching standpoint, we're going to look at this and we're going to say, oh my God, these games are so sloppy compared to what we're used to seeing. It might not look all that different from the fans perspective, but he tends to think that teams with superior skill talent you know, I mean, maybe this isn't a surprise, but they, they will be at even a greater advantage, even if the the cohesiveness isn't there, just the raw talent might shine out amid all of this crazy pandemic stuff because, um, you know, it, it might be a little bit more drawn up in the dirt out there than usual. Yeah. Bad news for North- Northwestern fans, I guess. Um, Ty, there you go. What can we check out from uh, from you this week on the Solid Verbal or anywhere else? Yeah, we're uh, we're at solverbal.com. If you want to check us out, you can listen on Spotify, on on Apple, on Google. We do our podcast year round. As we said at the top, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing our best to ramp up and really steer into college football like we always do, but even to a greater degree in 2020. And uh, we'd love to have you aboard. Just check us out, solverbal.com. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on we're on Facebook as well. So we'd love to have you. Um, Join the Verballer Army. Go do that. I've listened to Ty and Dan forever now, I believe is the exact uh, timeline there. But I'm I'm happy for you guys. I'm I'm excited to see what's next. And uh, keep up the great work and keep giving me 
off-season content that I desperately need. When's the first preview coming out? When is the first team or conference preview coming out? Yeah, we're we're actually in the in the early phases of trying to plan that out, but right now it looks like probably sometime in mid-July, I want to okay. say. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. I'm excited. Um, I forgot to wear my Solid Rebel t-shirt during um, this podcast, so shame on me. But uh, go do that, too, if you don't already have a, a Verballer shirt. But either way, Ty, thank you so much for the time. You're very generous. I appreciate it. And uh, we will have to talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Thanks again for the invite. And uh, keep fighting the good fight. Hi, this is Chuck Dowdle of Bulldogs Roundtable, and I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Be sure to check out Chase's website at chasethomaspodcast.com and follow the Stone Mountain Native on Twitter and Facebook and listen to my show, Bulldog Roundtable, every Tuesday and Thursday from 9 to 9.30 on 680 The Fan. Have a great Bulldog Day, everybody. All right, welcome to a rebranded edition of the John Taylor and Chase Thomas Talks Baseball on this very podcast. We're going to call it, as John's eyes, I can only imagine, roll back into his head. Jonathan they're, they're, Taylor Thomas they're, Talks. They're doing, like, <laughs> they're doing like 200 miles an hour, just spinning constantly. <laughs> Jonathan Taylor Thomas Talks Major League Baseball. That's how we brand folks in 2020. That's what we do. All right. I I mean, I, I texted you about this the other day and you were like, how do you spend this much time thinking about trivial things like this? Like we, we got to expand your horizons because I was literally driving down the road and I was like, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, our names, when you combine them form the kid from uh, home alone, not home alone, home improvement. And, yeah. Home improvement. Uh, what was the other what was the the, movie? He was in? Not Jingle he was in the adventures of Huck Finn. Oh, okay. I think Devin Sawa. Hmm. He was like every girl my age's first crush, I seem to recall. Like everyone just cites Jonathan Taylor Thomas as their first crush for most girls I've talked to about this. Is that right? Is that the same thing for you growing up? That was the kid? I feel like that's probably the case. I can't can't exactly remember, but I feel like that's probably the case. And because that makes sense is that we were both i imagine most girls first crushes growing up like the the sports encyclopedia who um got up early on saturday mornings reading the the ap top 25 that was that was that was the the cool thing right yeah that, that's as far as i can remember i mean i don't <laughs> i was never really cool at any point as a child so same still not that's why we're doing a podcast right now. Absolutely. Actually, you know what? Are podcasts cool now? Are enough cool people doing podcasts where it's actually no, podcasts, cool thing? Podcasts are not cool. They, Still they were never cool, and they are especially not cool now because everyone does them. That's true. But you know what everyone doesn't do? Do them consistently because most podcasts are just graveyards because there are a lot of podcasts, but it's a misnomer because most do not stick with it. Most give up. And guess what? After 440 episodes, we can say... John, you and I, we don't give up. We, you know you've been doing this podcast for several years now? Have I been doing How did I get roped into this? I know, right? Like, if you do the math, I'm kind of concerned that now I've pointed this out to you and you're going to be like, wait, what? I've been doing this for how long? Yeah. Like three months. I was, was going to say, I, I, I can only remember so many episodes. 
I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Like, you were on this podcast in 2018. Okay. Well, I do remember that. Let me see 2017. Barely. I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was 2017 when it started, but let me see. Uh, no. So it looks like. No, actually, yes. 2017 was your first time on this podcast. Wow. Three years, sir. That's not bad. Not bad. I appreciate that. Not bad at all. Well, I'm uh, I'm just glad to have a spot I can give some red hot uh, Diamondbacks takes. I guess that's what we're doing today. Oh, we're doing Diamondbacks because we already did the AL East a few weeks back, which you should check out if you have not already. But the MLB season, it's probably coming back. Um, I, I, I would assume it's coming back. I think it's coming back. And it looks like it's going to be early July. Um, and I think if we just talk about a different team a week um, that we have not covered yet, I think it will coincide nicely um, to lead us into the 2020 season. And we might leave a team or two off that just really is not all that interesting. We're looking at you, the Colorado Rockies. But um, the Arizona Dimebacks, I think, are interesting for a multitude of reasons. So I wanted to pick your brain about this team. And I wanted to start here. This is a quote from Tom Verducci in SI when he was talking about this uh, Dimebacks team. He said, quote, that organizational skill informs a decision to trade a homegrown star such as first baseman Paul Goldschmidt before last season or an ace like Zach Greinke in last July because in adding catcher Carson Kelly or righty starter Luke Weaver or left fielder Josh Rojas, our guy, or first base prospect Seth Beer, Arizona believes it's getting not only value in the future but in the present as well. And I think this is a good way of looking at how this organizational shift has um, taken place from Stewart um, to Hazen. And I, you and I have been very hard on this organization in the last couple of years. Like we, we've been very hard on them. The JD Martinez stuff was just kind of a bummer. They were close. We think they were closer than maybe they thought they were. Um, but it does seem to be that they're trying their damnedest to compete now and also compete in the future. And, you can look no further than guys like Christian Robinson, but um, what do you, what do you think of that broad stroke of the way that this team is currently constructed and run? So what's interesting to me is there are so many teams in the last five or so years that have really kind of pushed hard on that sustainability thing, the flexible contention idea, which more times often than not is just a, a way of saying we're going to cut payroll and trade away veterans once they get toward, or not even veterans, trade away players once they get toward free agency, but we're not going to tank. Um, it's just it's just a way to paper over it. We're going to be competitive, but for less money, and as a result, we're going to win fewer games. The Diamondbacks are not necessarily, they're doing that to me. That's what they've been doing the last few years with Mike Hazen in charge, because uh, Diamondbacks ownership has never with the weird exception of Granke, who now looks more and more like a kind of just um, an exception to the way they run things. And I, and I, I know Granke too, is part of the old Dave Stewart regime. And I think that probably had a lot to do with it too, but you know, since that they really have not spent um, in free agency much. I think Bumgarner this winter is the biggest deal they've done in quite a while. And even he didn't crack a hundred million. Um, they're really more focused on, that idea of sustainable contention with regard to building a roster kind of on the cheap targeting guys who are maybe undervalued in other organizations or who they think they can acquire at a reasonable discount. Like, I, like what they did with Sterling Marte, where they 
didn't really give up a whole hell of a lot to get him. Um, and they avoid doing stuff like obviously they traded Granky, you know, they traded Paul Goldschmidt. They, I assume they will, I, obviously the weirdness of this 2020 season will complicate this somewhat, but with Robbie Ray being a free agent this winter, I assume at some point they will trade Robbie Ray in order to get something of value for him um, as opposed to just a conditional draft pick. But they, they actually have built a good team despite not spending as much. And some of that, which is kind of all more amazing because their farm system, the one that Hazen inherited was bad. Um, they had not really made much in the way of impact signings. They were not a team that was kind of succeeding at that, I guess that old money ball model of kind of um, exploiting market inefficiencies and, and, and finding these kind of, um, as you call them, unearthed gems. Um, but now they really have. I mean, you saw that. I mean, Christian Walker is a really great example of that. Uh, picking up Eduardo Escobar from the Twins, you know, thinking that there was something real about his breakout, and that certainly looked to be the case last year was a good example of that. Um, that uh, that super interesting Zach Gallon trade they had, where they gave away Jazz Chisholm for Gallon, I thought was really interesting and a really a nifty move on their part. Obviously, the pieces they got back for Goldschmidt, which did not look great at the time. You know, people thought Luke Weaver was you know, maybe a mid-rotation starter. And Carson Kelly, no one really knew what he could do because he'd been behind Yadi Molina for a couple of years. But, you know, those two have... Those two are, and the thing is, like, they get guys who not only produce, but produce on the cheap. You know, you put together the salaries for Walker, Gallon, Weaver, Kelly, um, who else? Kettle, I guess Kettle Marte. That's, you know, that was, that was a trade-off here that Hazen, I believe, didn't make. I, I can't actually no, I remember. It was 2017 when uh, that was made. I think it was Stewart. Yeah, because that was that was November 2017. I remember. I remember. Walker I remember that would happen. And Mitch Hanniger. Yeah, that was Taiwan yeah. Walker and Mitch mm-hmm. Hanniger. Yeah, um, but obviously, Kettle Marte is not making much money. Um, you know, I could go on. Like all of those guys combined, probably make less than what Zach Greinke is going to make this year in Houston. Um, and they're going to produce pretty much the equivalent amount of value. I mean, they have basically mastered that quantity and quality. Yes. You know, because you've seen you've seen a lot of trades like, you know, the, the easiest example I always go for is the Pirates Garrett Cole trade, where they got a lot in return in terms of just of literal bodies, but they weren't any good. You know, they got Joe Musgrove and uh, this is a third baseman that they now have. She's um, I'm blanking on that. It doesn't matter. They got it was a package headline by Joe Musgrove, which is already a bad start. And. You know, I remember Pittsburgh, the, their front office crowing about, oh, we got all these years of team con- of cheap team control and cost certainty and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, four players each. It, it doesn't matter if none of those players actually produce anything. You're just, you're better off paying Garrett Cole. Um, even if, as it turns out, he was kind of wasted on the Pirates and way better off with a much smarter organization that also cheated. But Arizona really has mastered that whole, like, not only are they going to get quantity back, like they got three prospects for Goldschmidt, they got four prospects back for Granke. Uh, I assume whenever they trade Ray, they'll probably get two or three. They, and they get guys also who are those high floor with relatively high ceiling prospects too. Guys who can contribute to them in the major leagues right away. Like Weaver and Kelly contributed right away. I imagine um, we were joking about Josh Rojas, but you know he came as over as the Granky trade. I imagine he will help contribute as a utility, as a backup outfielder type right away. I mean, um, Corbin Martin, I think is hurt. But, you know, when he's healthy, he will, he should help. Seth Beer is a guy who, you know, if, if Walker, if Walker takes a step back or if, you know, if they find an opportunity to move him for, you know, a better package, he can help right away too. Or maybe, you know, maybe if they really feel like it, he can be part of that universal DH rotation 
uh, if the universal DH is a thing in this 20 and whatever weird 2020 season we're going to get. I'm you know, so big and yeah, by the way. Yeah, I, I am too. I'm, I'm very excited not to see pitchers hit. I'm also excited to see Arizona put Bumgarner as a DH on Daisy. Oh, I like that's be a lot of fun. Maybe that's part of his um, contract to sign in Arizona is like, you got to let me DH if ever given the possibility. I really hope he did do that. And I think, I think the Zach Gallon trade is probably the best example of what Arizona does. Like, Jazz Chisholm's a really good prospect. You know, there's there's no way around that he's a super good middle infielder. A lot of scouts really like what he can do, but he is still probably at least two to three years away from contributing to major league level. Zach Allen is ready now. And not only is he ready now, but he is a better fifth starter option than Merrill Kelly or whoever else the Diamondbacks have there, assuming Weaver is healthy and takes the, the fourth spot in the rotation behind Bumgarner and Ray and uh, Mike Leak. That I mean, that's because that's a really weird rotation, good, and it's extremely bizarre. Like, it's extremely it's a, bizarre. It's such a bizarre rotation to me because, and I imagine we'll get into it, but like, aside from Ray, no one in that rotation throws particularly hard. But they get, I case. think, Weaver and yeah, we yeah, Weaver and Gallon, I think, top out around like 94, maybe 95, which back in the day, yeah, it was a lot. Nowadays, it's nothing. You know, Leak can barely even touch 90. Bumgarner is sitting pretty much 90-91 at this point. But they all, you know, they get a lot of soft contact. They they have a lot. Of, they really know how to use their pitches. It, there's that kind of mold you see there. They want guys who maybe they're not throwing super hard. And maybe, the, maybe that's something the Diamondbacks have identified, that, that velocity is an overvalued commodity on the market. But that what really matters is, for lack of a better word, pitchability. And that Weaver and Gallon have that in spades. And that that's the kind of pitcher that they want to target. And that in that sense, signing Bumgarner, I mean, I think they signed Bumgarner primarily because if he's healthy, he's a lock for 200 above average innings a year. And there's another, that's another thing that it's, you can't quantify that value enough because of how few starters actually do that nowadays um, and take so much pressure off your bullpen. And that's like, even a guy like Lee, who is at his best, an average starter, you know, he is, he is the definition of a league average starter at this point. He still threw, I believe, 180-some innings last year between Seattle and Arizona. Same thing with a guy like Merrill Kelly. Totally league average, but he will eat innings. And there is value in that, especially because, and I imagine we'll get into this too, if there's one real problem spot on this team, it's the bullpen. And they kind of need they need to be a team that kind of minimizes the, the number of innings that that bullpen has to pitch. And so if you have Baumgartner and Leak and guys like Weaver and Gallon who can comfortably get through six innings, even Ray when he's on and not walking everybody is, you know, pretty good to get to five or six, you know, that leaves only a few innings a night for your bullpen to have to deal with. And ideally it's just the same guys you actually trust like Archie Bradley and Juan Lopez and Junior Guerra and uh, Kevin Ginkle, you know, that, that is kind of their recipe for success. And I think that's, that's a large part of what Arizona has done. They've identified the things that work for them. They've identified that, you know, if they're going to trade away a high-priced veteran or a guy reaching free agency or someone, that they're going to get some major league, like, ready help in return. But as opposed to just teams like the Pirates or the Blue Jays that just seem to be content with getting whatever prospects they can, you know, they've targeted not a, a specific group. And they're, they're just, their player evaluation seems to be really good, um, which is not a surprise, excuse me, it's not a surprise given that. You know, they have the best parts of Boston's former brain trust running them. You know, the same guys who really did so much to build that team into a into a continuous contender before uh, before ownership basically just got tired of spending. So that is pretty much what Arizona does. They, they, they're very flexible. They're super adaptable. They've, you know, 
it's really easy to say. It's like, why would you build a team where their ceiling is like, or where they're, you're just aiming for like 85 wins? It's like, well, one, you know, their floor is, their floor is probably like 82, 83 wins. Right. And that's, that's, that's pretty much a contender right there. And they have a lot of upside. I mean, it's a team that went into, I believe, September last year, pretty close. And maybe not, maybe not last year. Was it last no, year where they went in? Year. They were pushing last year. Yeah, they were pushing last year for a wild card spot. They were never close, I don't think, in the division because, well, the Dodgers. Because that's what made the Ryan and, Ray and the, stuff so complicated. Where They were like, should they just trade Ray? And it was just like, no, they, they like him. They're just they're going to hold I, on to him. I think, I think the one problem that the Diamondbacks have, and it's, it's similar because they're similar in so many ways to the Rays, which fitting because they both came to the league at the same time. They're, they're just united forever in their expansion uh, silliness. Is that they just happen to be stuck in a division with a better higher spending yeah um just juggernaut that they simply like there's a like i'd say like i don't know i haven't looked at the latest oh i guess the fan graphs odds for division winners are kind of pointless right now or the bp odds like <laughs> who knows what what division setup we're gonna get yeah um if we were to go by the old nl west i probably would have given arizona like a 10 to 20 percent chance of winning the division depending what happens with how divisions shake out obviously that that could change but 20 percent like a one in five chance like I mean, that's not nothing. Playoff and, odds. Yeah. Like I think they have good playoff odds. And that's the thing. Like I, if we were still using the old 2020 schedule and setup, like granted, you know, that's now impossible, but you know, if you'd asked me before the season started, assuming that the season had actually happened, like, what do you think the Diamondbacks would be? I'd say they're very strong wildcard contender, you know, out really outside chance of division, but definitely one of like three, one of like four or five NL teams, right? Say, yeah, wildcard contenders. I think them, um, some which whichever teams Padres, finish second and third in the NL East conversation. It's Padres like, are a dark horse. I'd, I'd say whichever teams finish second and third in the NL East, whichever teams finish second and third in the NL Central, Arizona and San Diego. I think those are the six teams that would have been really in the wild card mix. Yeah, the NL is just better than the AL. It is just there. There is just more. The NL actually has a better this kind of like because those those six teams I, I'm thinking of all kind of fit into that 82 to 88 win territory. And the AL just doesn't have that anymore. The AL has two super teams in the Yankees and Houston, a team that like a slight, a half tier below in Minnesota. Um, the Rays are probably there with the twins as well. Two teams that should be better. And as a lot is going to depend, but I've taken a financial step back in Cleveland and Boston, but they still have really good talent on those teams. And then it's a, Oh, I forgot the A's. The A's are right there with Minnesota. And then it's a pretty big drop, I think, to the likes of, I guess, Texas. Texas would probably be one of those like 80 to 85 win teams, maybe. Um, and then, and then after that, it's just, it's nothing but crap all the way down. Um, no offense to the Blue Jays, but I, I don't, I think we talked about this. I don't really see them as being more than like a 75 to 80 win team at the best, unless they really get some, ex- just, some exceptional pitching. Yeah, they're a year or two. So, obviously, the Blue Jays are coming, obviously, they're just not coming yet. Yeah, and so, but I think you're right that the NL is just overall deeper because it just has this kind of this established tier. Like you, you know, you have the Dodgers. Um, I'd say the Nationals at their peak are probably there with them, and then the Braves, if everything goes right, are probably that top tier of NL teams. And then, every, and then you have like the Mets, the Phillies. The, I think all three of the top contenders in the NL Central are in that second tier: the Cubs, the Cardinals, and the Brewers. Maybe the Reds, if you want to be generous. And then the Diamondbacks and the Padres are all in that kind of, you know, 80-ish win area, um, which is a lot more than the AL. I mean, and then again, obviously, these are all win totals based on a 162-game season that we're not going to get anymore. But 
Um, yeah, I just, I, it's, it, it was easy. I think at first to kind of rip on the diamondbacks for being cheap and being like, Oh, you trade, how are you going to say you're contending when you trade away Paul Goldschmidt and you trade away Zach Granke, like when you're actually doing well and when you don't sign big free agents and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, because their player develop their player valuation and development's really strong so that they can get, you know, top tier performance out of guys who are being paid on, you know, who are on their first or second year of contract. Like, that's pretty much the ideal. And a lot of other teams have tried it and are not as successful because they're just not as good or because they're not, they're just, or they're lying in terms of what they say about contending on a budget. The Diamondbacks are actually contending on a budget. And it's, it's a really impressive thing. And it's, it's actually kind of nice to see a team that has decided like, yeah, we actually are going to aim for like 88 wins. You know, we're not going to tear it down. We, we know we're not the Dodgers, but that doesn't matter. We can still contend and we can still be a playoff team. And in a short series, who knows what happens? And, they can and I think that's Dodgers-y probably what the, in that they the Dodgers excel in like the the Turner stuff, where they can bring in guys and quote unquote fix them and turn them into stars. Like we just take for granted that Kettle Marte was fourth in NL MVP voting last year. That's insane. Yeah, that 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 season came out of nowhere. Not in, I I actually got some guff on Twitter for this back last year when I said something about, something about the, the effect of like Kettle Marty, who the hell saw that coming and a bunch of dimebacks. I was like, Oh, we didn't. It's like, <laughs> okay, fine. He's a good, he's a good player. I'm not going to, it's not like, this isn't the equivalent of like, um, geez, I don't know. Like, uh, who's an, who is an Orioles player? This is, <laughs> this is the equivalent. That, that's Marcus, a fun game. Who is, Nick who is an Orioles player? Um, this is the equivalent. Oh, God, J.R. Gibbons. This isn't the equivalent of someone like um, some bad utility infielder, actually Eduardo Escobar. This isn't the, the equivalent of like Eduardo Escobar suddenly cranking 35 homers, although he also did that, which is weird on its own, but that's probably a lot of juice ball stuff. This was a, he was a top prospect who struggled a bit and seems to have found a stroke. That happened. But the, the degree to which he broke out is the crazy part. Like Something that blew me away is Christian Walker and Paul Goldschmidt had by OPS Plus almost identical seasons. How did the Diamondbacks do that? Like Christian Walker was a fine prospect, but he had bounced around the league a lot. And the Diamondbacks figured something out. His numbers would have been better too if he hadn't hit a really bad slump in May and June last year. Yep. You know, he's a legitimately good player. They figured something out there. They saw something, they figured they fixed it. Like they and in that sense because Goldschmidt was such a fan favorite and like they took a huge risk. Like JD Martinez is whatever, but like Goldschmidt's a different animal for them. And betting on Walker and it's also just like their evaluation stuff just deserves credit because yes they brought him in and they excel but like that's a huge risk but also like they knew something that other teams didn't like that's they deserve a lot of credit for that yeah and, and, it's, and it's in line with teams like Tampa and Houston and all the other smart clubs that people crow about in that you know they they, they find undervalued players and they make them stars you know, they're, they're really good at that. You know, the, the areas in which they've actually, and they've struggled more is when they bring in like established veterans. Yeah. Um, like, I, I know it's not really fair to say Adam Jones because he was what, 36 last year, 37. He yeah. was, you know, come off a bad year with Baltimore. He was, he was very clear, like at the end. So I'm not necessarily going to say like Arizona made a huge blunder there. I also um, think they brought him in for different reasons. Yeah, I think there was some clubhouse effect there, too, yeah. that they were looking for. It'd be kind of a, a veteran presence, which I think is why they brought in a guy like Stephen Vogt this year to to be that kind of big clubhouse guy to, you know, to um, be a leader in there. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, they've I, it's actually fun now I'm struggling to think of, like, other veterans they've struggled with when they've brought them in. And, like, 
no, they're just a really solidly run organization that is actually contending on, I don't even want to call it cheap, but they're certainly not running a big payroll. I, I don't know what the exact number is, especially now that uh, payroll figures are kind of in flux. But I don't. I think their projected opening day like payroll was probably under a hundred million. Yeah, you know, because they aside from Bumgarner, and I think Leak is making a decent amount. Ray is, I think, since this is the last year of arbitration, is making a decent amount. Um, I'm not sure what Starling Marte is making, but you know, they they don't Can have that many guys Marte? on that team. Yeah, that one. I was really impressed with that trade. I mean, I. When in doubt, pick on Pittsburgh because yeah. they've just clearly shown that they don't care anymore. Which is crazy because um, Neil Huntington was just a great GM for so long and like their ownership group, like that's a conversation for a different day. But like Huntington was just was great and like big data baseball was about him and Clint Hurdle. And he was really good for a really long time and then just like the Chris Archer trades just like an all time blunder and now they got Charrington in there, but I yeah, it's just wild that the Pirates have fallen so quickly and so fast because by all accounts, I mean it's not like the people the their GMs are just like terrible. It's, Dave Stewart's not running the Pirates. They're just having terrible luck maybe. I don't know. The Pirate stuff is just sad. And, and like, also I can, like can Marte play center field cuz right now he's penciled in at center field for them. Yeah, and I think part of that is because they're not. I don't. I don't think Kettle Marte really played that position well last year. I don't think he wants. Um, to obviously, either. I don't think. I mean, some of that I think was just a learning curve, but you never really got the sense he was comfortable there. His jumps were never very good. He didn't take particularly good routes. Like uh, he made up for a lot of it with just his speed. But you know, Starling Marte, his defense has been slipping for a few years now. He is thirty years old, and he turns thirty-one. On well, not till actually no. He turned 31 last October, so he's 31 now. This is age 31 season. You know, he's obviously not getting any faster. You know, I think to a certain degree he's kind of a stopgap because you know he's he'll play he'll play the season. He's got a team option for next year, 12 and a half million, which is certainly not crazy. Um, and I think what makes a lot of sense for Arizona with that trade is David Peralta is a free agent after this year. Peralta is, I believe, older than Marte. I don't have the exact number on my head, but I can. Can we also throw out Peralta, who was an indie ball guy? They turned into a good player. Yeah, his story is fantastic. I, I, you know, he's he's got a he's got a race. Yeah, Peralta will be thirty three this August. So Marte is two years younger. Peralta is a free agent after this year. He has not played. He only played a hundred games last year because of injury. He's always been kind of an injury prone guy. Last year was not a good season for him. I have to imagine Arizona, the mindset is Marte's not just the center fielder we can plug in now so we can move Kettle back to second base, let him play his natural position, let him feel comfortable there in the middle infield. But also, when Peralta walks, because I cannot imagine they will re-sign him at 33 years old, you know, to whatever he's going to be looking for, we can, if we want to, we can keep Starling Marte for the reasonable price of $12.5 million, shift him over to one of the outfield corners, and then we can either look to see what's on the center field market or maybe by that point, you know, you do have, um, and, and admittedly, like, I'm not sure prospect-wise where Arizona fits in with this in terms of um, outfield prospects. I mean, I know they have a lot of them, but, you know, I'm actually just going to look it up now just because I'm curious to see who, you know, maybe, I, mean, I imagine that's part of their mindset. You know, you let David Peralta walk, you keep Starling, Mar- you, you keep Starling Marte maybe, and maybe by this time next year, although obviously what's going on now is, in terms of the lack of actual baseball happening is going to make things a little more difficult. Maybe 
No, they don't really have any guys close enough to the majors to, to bank on that. But who knows? Maybe they, they keep Marte anyway. Maybe they play him another year in center. Maybe they move to an outfield corner and see what the free agent market turns up or if there's anything, anything available on trade. I think it just makes sense for them to have that in as a fallback option, even though he's probably he's definitely not the center fielder he used to be. And even though like, there's a chance, like, you know, again, he's, he just turned, he turned 31 last October. This is definitely the age at which you start to worry that these guys start to take a step back, especially someone like Marte, whose game is based on a lot of speed, who is not a super, uh, I wouldn't say a super patient guy at the plate. You know, he's never been a, he's never been a guy who draws a lot of walks. You know, he drew 25 last year, you know, 586 plate appearances, which is almost impossible. I, I don't know how you actually walk that little, but you know, he's, he's a guy whose game is probably not going to age very well, but at the same time, Arizona has only made a pretty light commitment. It's just whatever they pay him this year and his team option for next year, if they exercise it and that's it. And they gave up practically nothing to get him. You know, they, they acquired him for Brennan Malone and Leover Piguero. I'll, I'll give you five bucks if any of those guys make any noise in the major leagues ever in their careers. You know, this is just not, it's almost like, why not? If that, if it's that easy to get someone, you know, to get someone of Starling Marte's caliber, why the hell not? You I also know? think they can continue adding guys. When I look at their construction and where they are with their salaries and how, like, you don't go after Madison Bumgarner and you don't keep Robbie Ray and you don't acquire Luke Weaver. You don't do what they're doing without the idea that you can add somebody else. I love their top four. Like I love the Marte Marte connection at the top and then Escobar um, and Walker and guys like, like the top of their order is fine, but like the Nick Ahmed spot, the, the Jake lamb spot, who's just fallen off a cliff since 2017. And well, the, I, the nice thing, the nice thing with, with also with adding Marte is Starling Marte is that help them plug their third base gap because yeah. they, they add Starling Marte. They move Kettle Marte back to second mm-hmm. and Eduardo Escobar gets to keep playing third. And he's not a right. great third baseman by any stretch, but it's way better than having to play Jake Lamb every day. Yes. Um, so that, you know, that, that trade really helped them in a lot. It helped make them a more flexible roster, both in 2020 and going forward. And so, yeah, I mean, you look at that lineup, like, Nick Ahmed's the worst hitter in that lineup by far, mm-hmm. but he also was pretty much league average last year offensively. And the other thing is he is so good defensively. You don't really need, he doesn't need to be anything more than a league average bat for him to be an above average player in terms of value. You know, like everything works for that. Like their weak spots last year, you know, they, they had second base was, was just a revolving issue. Once they moved Marte to center, you know, they had Wilmer Flores, they had, um, Domingo Leba, they had uh, Ildemaro Vargas. You know, these are not guys you want taking regular bats. Now they won't. You know, third base, they had way too much Jake Lamb. Now they won't. Right field was way too much Adam Jones and Gerard Dyson. Now it's Cole Calhoun, who, you know, certainly another one of those guys is a little bit on the older side. He's good for a year. Uh, like, maybe, while you're waiting on Christian Robinson, this is this is what you do. Yeah, and that's the thing. And, like, he's still a perfectly productive major league hitter. You know, I don't think he's a leadoff hitter anymore. It's certainly not a guy who should have been batting in front of Mike Trout. But, you know, like you said, for $6 million this year, although that's going to change, $8 million next year and a team option that they're probably going to decline in 2022, grand total of $14 million plus a buyout, $16 million. And again, they're not even going to pay him all that much in 2020 now. You know, like that's for, for a guy to do, to put up a league average offense and play league average defense. And basically, you also know you can kind of pencil him into the lineup every day because he's a durable, consistent guy. 
you could do a lot worse. And that, like, that's better than having to rotate Adam Jones and Gerard Dyson and Tim LaCastro and, you know, whoever else, like the, you know, they kept throwing out there. It's better than having to rush up Josh Rojas. It's better than having to, you know, push on those kinds of guys. Like that's just, it's just useful. It just gives you that extra flexibility. And it's also made it so that this, this lineup is really good. You know, your, your worst hitter in there is Nick Ahmed and he's perfectly fine. Second worst hitter is Cole Calhoun. He's perfectly fine. You know, there's, there's, there are not really a lot of holes. I don't know if you necessarily beyond Kettle Marte have a guy who can put up real superstar numbers. You know, you don't have that kind of what they had in Paul Goldschmidt in years previous, that centerpiece of the lineup beyond Kettle Marte, but you have a lot of guys who are not going to hurt you when they're up at the plate. You know, you have guys who are going to have quality at bats, take pitches, you know, make pitchers work, who have some speed on the bases, who can, well, all of, all of whom have a little bit of power at, at least, you know, I think, you know, Carson Kelly, 18 home runs last year and only 111 games for a catcher. That's great. You know, um, everyone there can contribute a little. And especially too, if they have that universal DH, well, that's a perfect spot for, actually, I was going to say it's a perfect spot for someone like Wilmer Flores, but he's on the Giants now. It's, it's a better spot for someone like a, like a Steven Vogt. Yep. You know, way to get his bat in the lineup while also letting Kelly get the bulk of the playing time. It's, you know, this it's just a well-built, flexible lineup and roster. Can I tell you and what I'm going to target? Uh, it, under that? normal circumstances. Like, uh, the pandemic obviously changes things. So we have to throw that caveat in there. But, like, when I look at this roster and what they're doing in their pipeline, this is a team, and I trust Hazen a lot, that I would not be surprised. Like, the Bumgarner threw a lot of people through for a loop in real time. I would not be surprised if Lindor is on their short list. I would not be surprised if they're looking at Nick Ahmed spot. They're thinking Marte and Lindor. It would not surprise See, the problem, me at all. The problem with that is Arizona is in the same position Cleveland is where they're not going to give that kind of the money that Lindor is going to be looking for when he reaches free agent. And granted, that's they still might do it with him. I don't know if they would do it with everybody. He's worth it. Do it for him. He's who definitely worth paying? it. And you, who else are they paying anytime soon other than Marte? Who else? There's no one else in the pipeline, like right now, that they have to pay an exorbitant amount of money. That's a good point. And, like, he definitely is a guy who's worth giving that kind of contract to. I just, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to take a quick look now that, you, now that you've said, I'm just going to take a quick look at the Diamondbacks. Um, if the what they owe going for forward. Machado. I just I find it hard to believe that the Diamondbacks would not pay Francisco Lindor. I just do. Yeah, it makes it makes sense. Like I'm, I'm it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting theory, and I, I can definitely see it because, like you said, who, here's who's on their payroll for Lindor's a free agent after the 2022 season. I think it's 21, isn't it? Or is it 22? 21. So I thought it was 20. Either way, yeah, this okay. is the this is the big money they have on the books past 2021. Let's just. We'll, we'll keep it simple. Bumgarner, um, Marte, the last year of his uh, contract is 2022, and then he'll, and then there's a an option in 2023. I think it's a player option. Um, or I assume, I assume they'll probably tear it, tear up the contract, and get a new deal done at some point. Um, Peralta, actually, I made a mistake. Peralta is not a free agent for actually quite a while. I thought he was. That's my fault. Um, but. So, but they're only paying him seven some million, and maybe I assume that he's a guy they can move somewhere else. But the only real money on their books is Bumgarner past twenty twenty one. Bumgarner, Nick Ahmed, weirdly enough, Kettle Marte, David Peralta, 
and Calhoun if they exercise his option, and then a bunch of um, a bunch of ARB guys who are going to be and any some of these ARB guys like you know Weaver, Kelly, Walker um, are all going to be ARB guys in that time. You know maybe if if he turns it around, John Duplantier, maybe some of those prospects they have. Gallon obviously, Gallon actually will be that'll be his last twenty twenty. He, Zach Gallon is not even going to reach arbitration until 2023. Like they, like you're right. They they do not have a lot of money on the books going forward. The great majority of it is Bumgarner, and I mean some of it is is money like to Ahmed and Peralta combined 16 million dollars. That that's not fun for them. And I assume that any Lindor anything would be contingent on being able to get rid of those two contracts. But yeah, you're right. They have a lot of financial flexibility going forward, and the guys that they were already making an impact now, who are already producing, are not going to cost them all that much going forward. You know, like there's a path. At, there. Like there, there's an obvious path, and I think that puts them in the Dodgers conversation. Lindor makes that much of a difference for them. I, I really believe that because I like the rotation enough. The bullpen, if that's your biggest issue, you can throw stuff and fix that. Like the bigger thing, the thing is bullpens the are the easiest. Stuff. Yeah. Bullpens are the easiest thing to fix during a season, you know, also because the, you the can, Nationals just won a World Series with a ridiculous bullpen. Like they were, <laughs> we. That's true, and yeah. yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, granted, the Diamondbacks don't have as strong a starting three as Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and Patrick Corbin, but like, you're right. Like that bullpen, that Nationals bullpen was flat out fucking bad. It got better as the season went on, and Dan Hudson obviously made a big difference, but. Yeah, you can win with a bad bullpen. And if Arizona's bullpen is not good and they want to make it better, there are ways to make that to, to help that. There are ways to fix that. It's way easier to fix that than it is to get like, you know, well, I, I just I just imagine it's easiest to get relievers because they just cost less. They just cost the least out of any of the upgrades you could make. So I think the only issue with regards to not only issue, but I think the other issue with Lindor is does Arizona have the kind of prospect package that Cleveland would be asking for? You know, if if Cleveland comes and says we want Christian Robinson and Dalton Varsho and um, some pitcher of some sort, you know, or if they want to say we want we want we want Varsho and we want Alec Thomas and we want like John Duplantier or something. I don't know. I'm just I'm just obviously pulling names out of a hat here just based on their um, on their top prospect list. You know, does. Arizona have what it takes not only to make a deal, but do they are they willing to part with those kinds of guys who make up who, who are such a huge part of that strategy of contending on the cheap because you get these guys producing in their pre-arb and arb years. I imagine Varsho might be an easier call just because they already have Casey Kelly and if or Casey Kelly, sorry, Carson Kelly. Casey Kelly is a he's actually he was in KBO. I don't know where he is now. Um you know, if, if Kelly continues to produce, then maybe maybe a guy like Varsha becomes more expendable. But do you really want to move one of your outfielders in the future of Ro- in Robinson or Thomas? Is, is that something you're comfortable with? But I, at the same time, like, this is the other nice thing about the trades they've made that have kind of landed them this kind of surplus value. Carson Kelly makes a guy like Dalton Varsha potentially expendable in a trade. You know, they can take some of the guys they got in that Astros deal if they want to, like Seth Beer or J.B. Bukowskis, and maybe that becomes part of a package that goes toward Cleveland. You know, they can flip some of the guys, because they got four prospects for Zach Greinke. They can move one of them and, you know, kind of shrug it off. And it helps, too. They have, they have been better at drafting. They have really improved that farm system. They have just done really well in, the years, in, in recent years. 
it's, I mean, if there's one issue you kind of have with Arizona's farm system, it's a lot of it is still pretty far away. Yeah. You know, Robinson, Thomas, uh, Corbin Carroll, these are all guys who will not be up for a few more years at least. Um, preparing for that. The pit- That's the other thing is they're preparing for that weight. They're preparing for that long yeah. situation. And regardless, and regardless, maybe you do say, hey, you know, we do have a surplus of these kind of high-end guys who are in the low minors who aren't going to be around for a while. Like, you know, and, and you saw that already in, in, in action, like I said, with Jazz Chisholm. You saw them move Jazz Chisholm for a guy who can help right now and who fills a need right now in Zach Allen. Because before that trade, I mean, I think that, that happened around the same time as the, as the Granke trade. And those are both deadline deals, right? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, they got obviously Bukowskis and the injured Corbin Martin, but you could see them targeting. They wanted high-level pitching because that was something the Diamondback system didn't really have with the exception of John Duplantier, who has not really produced kind of what they expected. You know, maybe they feel like, hey, we can, you know, that's something we can, we now have a surplus of, we can turn around and give up. Like, you know, that that's, those, but those are the only guys that really have, who are close to the majors. Everything else is like, maybe they're thinking, you know, we have a lot of these high-end guys in the low minors who aren't going to be here for a while, who may never produce, they might get derailed. If we have one shot at acquiring, an, you know, an MVP caliber talent like, like Francisco Lindor and really making it so that this team is an actual contender, should we do it? I think part of the calculus too, though, is the Dodgers. And what do you do if you're a good team stuck in the shadow of a juggernaut? You know, can you, if you're the, if you're the Diamondbacks, how comfortable do you feel sacrificing cheap talent? That could be a big part of your future that, you know, it's not just about 2020 and 2021. It's about 2024 and 2025 and all the years beyond that to increase your odds at taking the division from, let's say, 15% to 25%. If, if someone like Lindor can even change the calculus that much, is that worth it? You know, because you, you're banking not just on your team being great, but the Dodgers also having some real problems. That team is Which I would bet like on, crazy. man. Because you know what's uncharted territory? The Dodgers just continuing to fall just short over and over again. Like, that just doesn't happen. Eventually, the bottom falls out. Like, that... Like for them to have as much heartbreak late in the playoffs that they've had, like it, people need to prepare for the Dodgers fallout to happen. I, I, it may not be this year. It may be next year, maybe two years from now, but it's going to happen. The Dodgers fallout is going to happen. Well, sure. I mean, no team can be good in perpetuity except right. for the weird blame off the Yankees. But I, I think just the question is with the, and I, and I forgot to mention too, like when the, when the Diamondbacks inevitably trade Ray, you know, when they get rid of Robbie Ray, because they're, they're, they're trading not gonna... Robbie Ray. Is my bet. Let's see. I just, I, he's not a guy they're going to resign. I don't. Think. I don't think they're going to resign him, but I don't the, think they're going to trade him. I think he's just going to be. He's going to walk somewhere else. Well, I mean, the other, the other part of this is the weirdness of the 2020 season and the compressed schedule, and you know, the fact that you're going to need more pitching probably to get through this season than you would normally. Maybe that pumps the brakes for them a little bit, and maybe they want to see, like, okay, how is this going to shake out? Are we going to end up in in the NL West? Are we going to end up in some mutant version of the NL West? You know, what's the postseason structure? If they add two more playoff teams, then certainly I think Arizona probably holds on to what they have and is like, screw it, we're making a run. But I think they're doing that either way. Probably. I just think that, you know, I think to a certain degree, Ray is probably the guy you look at who, if anyone's going to get traded, especially if there's a team who suffers a pitcher in or that suffers a pitcher injury around what would be the midseason point or going into the postseason. And obviously this is all dependent to when the, when the trade deadline ends up being, you know, and Ray suddenly becomes the number one pitcher available on the market. And you have teams like the Yankees or the twins or, uh, 
or the Astros or the A's kind of, you know, sniffing around. How, are you really going to say no to that? Given what they can offer you? If you've already calculated that you are probably not going to win the World Series or that you can still be a good team even without Robbie Ray. And that's me the thing. Like, I don't see, and like you said, you know, you agree they're probably not going to resign him. So I think that makes the calculus all the more that they will end up trading him because if they're not going to keep him, and the draft pick presumably is not going to be a particularly high one. I'm not even going to try to attempt to figure out what draft pick compensation is going to look like after this year. Do you think the value is ever going to get to close, get close to what it was last year? Because I just don't. Probably not, but you never know. And again, like all it takes is one injury to, you know, one pitcher on a contending team, and all of a sudden you have enough to make a move. Like. I don't, I don't think necessarily that the Dynamax got a huge whole amount back for Granky, although part of that was just because Granky's salary is enormous. And he's also not, you know, he's 35 years old. He's not a, he, not, not like Robbie Ray in, in his prime ace, but yeah, obviously, you know, there, there are some factors there. But all it took was Houston deciding, hey, we need a pitcher. You know, we can't go into the postseason with just Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander. We need one more guy because the back of our, the middle and back of our rotation is just not getting the job done. That's all it took, and they got four prospects out of that, and none of those guys are superstars, but they got prospects out of that who can help either by plugging holes on the 2020 and 2021 teams or by being moved, like you said, for, like I said, actually, for, for a guy like Lindor, maybe, or even just for some, someone else. You know, that, that is prospect capital that they can use. And I think they're going to look at Ray the same way, which is if someone makes, obviously, and this is how it always works for everybody, but if someone makes us an offer that's going to give us pieces that are going to help more going forward than Robbie Ray will in 2020. We got to do it. You know, there's no, and I think that's well, a lot of what it's helped the Arizona. I'm also hedging on Ray staying in Arizona is that I, from people I've talked to, I, I, it just seems like he is staying in Arizona. Like it, it just seems like it would be a gigantic shock if he's actually moved based on who I've talked to. Well, that's, and that's fair. And like, you know, certainly if there's a feeling among the organization and among people there that, you know, they want to keep Ray and that it makes sense to keep Ray. Um, that's obviously one thing, but I, I do feel like, you know, that, 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 that ability kind of to, to do a, 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 a what's it called? A calculation um, in the Dimeback sense of, you know, we like this guy, he's important to us, but what is most important is always moving toward the future and always being able to stay as a contender kind of perpetually and not letting all the chips rest on one year or two years. You're always thinking two years down the line. And I think Ray is a good example of that because, you know, like you said, he's not coming back. I, I really doubt they're going to resign him. He's probably, even with free agency, going to be a horrible mess this winter. He is probably going to get a better deal from somebody else. I also think they believe they can find the next Robbie Ray. Like, I think they want to use and that's the other that thing. They can just find they, the, another version of him. Which is a very kind of old school Oakland A's way of doing it. It's the kind of old money ball sense of, you know, we don't need to pay for big free agents. We can just create our own guys who are just as good. And then they, then they walk when they become too expensive. Maybe it's Taewon Walker. And I think that's, if he plays, uh, maybe it's Taiwan Walker for the first time in three years. <laughs> Although Walker, he's back with Seattle now, isn't he? Oh, is he? That's probably true. I don't know. He hasn't played remember, baseball since yeah, 2017. He, he, he's, yeah, he's, he, I remember he signed a minor league deal with the Mariners and he's, he's trying to get it. Although I, I'm not sure how he's now the other guy in the Martin trade, by the way. Like, it's kind of wild that he's yeah, the other he, guy. Yeah, yeah. Kettle Marte and Mitch Hanniger are far and away the best pieces from that trade. Taiwan Walker became a total afterthought. You never know. Um, 
but yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it's just that ability on Arizona's part to think about the future constantly. You know, they're not, they're never just thinking about the year they're currently in, which is, I think how stuff like the Granke and Goldschmidt trades happen, you know, to anyone on the outside, it's like, how could you do this? How could you trade this, you know, valuable, um, you know, in the case of Goldschmidt, a, a guy, I don't, I don't know if you should have won that MVP, but an MVP caliber hitter, a Granke, a Cy Young caliber pitcher. How could you do that? It's like, well, because it's not just about 2018, 2019. It's about, you know, all the years going forward because they're a team that can't afford to just keep paying those guys forever. Oh, they can. Every team can afford to do that. But they've chosen not to pay those guys going forward because they, they would they would rather utilize their resources differently. Which sounds a little like spin, but Arizona's done it well. So That's the thing. It's like they've done it better. You can make the case than anybody else who's tried to live in the middle and contend without spending like the Yankees. I think they've done the best, smartest job. And also doing what they can to keep Hazen was huge because I think the Red Sox stuff was, was real. And I think more teams are going to want to pry him away from Arizona and be like, hey, we can we have bigger pocketbooks. We can let you do more stuff than what you can do in Arizona. But uh, it looks like he's going to be there for the foreseeable future. And that might be their biggest offseason win was just keeping him because I, I think it wouldn't have been a surprise if he was pried away, right? Yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised at all. So good for them. Um, do you have anything else on the Diamondbacks before we get out of here? No, no. Like I said, I think their biggest issue right now is the bullpen because, you know, Bradley, I, I'm not sold on Archie Bradley being a closer. I'm not But they have another one in the pipeline, sold on... I seem to remember. Who, is, who are we forgetting? There's another flamethrower younger kid who's made the case for being their well, I was going to say, Yohan Lopez's strikeout rate dropped precipitously last year, which is concerning. Um, Junior Guerra is fine, but he's definitely not a high leverage reliever. I, I really like Kevin Ginkles. Great strikeout rate, good control. Um, definitely a, a setup man for the future. I, that's my only area of concern. For them, is, do they have enough kind of good high leverage arms to protect the leads that they build? But again, like we said, it's pretty easy to fix a bullpen. Not easy, but it's it's easier to fix a bullpen. You know who's a good team? Than it's a it good is. team when we have to describe their bullpen as their biggest weakness. That's there's a direct correlation between us complaining yeah, about and their bullpen and whether like, or not they're good. <laughs> and that's the other thing. It's, it's not quite picking nits, but it's certainly like, well, I don't have a problem with their rotation. I got no problem with their lineup. Their defense is going to be fine. Like I don't think they're a great defensive team, but they're they're certainly not butchers out there. It's yeah, if, if really the biggest problem you can point at is say, oh, they don't have enough good arms in the bullpen, it's like, well, so do tw- that's a problem for 25 other teams, too. There are very few teams that have in most teams are not the Yankees who have yeah. like six closer quality arms in their bullpen, right? Like, most teams are the Diamondbacks who have a bunch of guys who could be good or might be bad. But yeah, I, I really like Arizona. I really think, you know, if this had been a normal season, I would have penciled them in as, an, as a certainly an, a wild card contender. I think I, if I'd had to make predictions, I would have picked them as a wild card team. There, there's a lot to like there, and not just obviously not just for 2020, but going forward, this is a really smart, well-run organization, which is kind of crazy because you know, as little as like three or four years ago, they seemed like they were just spiraling into the garbage. Yep. And now, now they're one of the model teams in the National League. Nuts. Good for them, and good for those fans because um, good for them. And they have a great name for their field. I don't know if you've seen that before. Yeah. But, uh, Chase I, field. I wonder. I, yeah. Did you get any chunk of the, the, the money for that? or No, but um, if I can no, tell okay. you how many times when people find out my name that they go, oh, like the bank. I, oh, I, yeah, I never exactly. know what to say to that. What, what am I supposed to say to that, folks? If you meet yeah, me in real life like... and I tell you that my name's Chase, don't go like the bank. Because I have yet to figure out how to respond to that. I've 
no idea. Well, it's, it's almost like it's almost like all the times I had to hear about when I say my name is John Taylor, like they say, oh, like Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Welcome oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's no, sorry, man. You, you, this is the new brand. You can't escape this, John. You, you got to run with. You got to admit that was. You got to admit that was a pretty good callback right there. That was a nice way to complete the cipher. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I can the tell old five percenter say. Yeah. You know what Very that is? Three-year chemistry right there, John. Ugh, three years of banter. Wonderful. That deep sigh. I, I might make that the cold open of this podcast for all future podcasts. Just a deep sigh from people. Who have Just to make it your theme song. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, that, would be, that would be me and my uncle. He's been doing it forever. <laughs> I can't do that. And now I have 680 the fans. Matt Chernoff doing the intro. I got Ben Ingram, Ray's Radio Network. Braves play-by-play guy, my favorite voice in sports, doing the closing. He'll be here in like 20 seconds after we're done here. But uh, yeah, you know, Chase Downs Podcast, we're growing. And we're growing with John Taylor. So I appreciate hey. uh, you being on for three years and continue to be on in the future. It's good. Good stuff. Yeah. Once once we actually figure out how and when there will be baseball, yeah, let's, let's talk about baseball and how screwed up it's going to be. I hope they do the um, mannequins. I want mannequins everywhere. I want some weird mannequins. I, I don't know why we're not doing this all over the place. I want cardboard cutouts of real people. Yes, like, that would be great too. But it, it just can't be empty. I want some <laughs> fake people in there. I want some kind of weird, fake, creepy stuff. Cardboard cutouts of Zach Granke. That's all I ask for. Just the stands are just full of thousands upon thousands <laughs> of Zach Granke. That's like his personal nightmare. And I'd be nervous because he's already in a anxious person and zach is my favorite pitcher of all time so i gotta be careful here him and tim lincecum shot guys um i also just identify with zach grink as a human being on a multitude of levels like i just i love that guy dating back to the kansas city years where uh he was almost a brave because uh who could forget the rumored jeffrey and corver dayton moore trade or dayton moore for zach grinky trade um wow the the weird alternate universe that would have created and he ended up being a royal anyway. That's what sucked too. Is he ended up just having like a? Oh, did he get a ring with Kansas City? Was he on that? Team? No, he wasn't on that. He wasn't on that 2015 team. Okay. He was. Um, he was there in like 2010 was, or so. Oh man, we're getting old. That was 2010. Yeah, he was actually very good old. at that point. Like maybe I shouldn't say good, but he was hitting. He was hitting dingers. Uh, yeah, he was platoon guy. He was socking them all. Yeah. All right, John. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk baseball with you, sir. Um, what team do you want to do next week? We haven't looked at it. What do you, who do you want to do? You know what? Let's do the Pirates. Let's do the Pirates oh, next God. week. There's no, so much to say about the Pirates. No one. Yeah, but it's all bad and depressing. You don't want to do the Pirates. Okay. What about the Cubs? I could do the Cubs. There's a lot to talk about with right? the Cubs. I think there's a lot, there's to, talk a lot to talk about with the Cubs. Most of it is Chris Bryant and how viciously that window is closing. But there's a lot to talk about with the Chicago Cubs. Future brave Chris Bryant. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's, let me have this. Oh, and by the way, who would you guess is the closest similarity con, like current player score for uh, on baseball reference for uh, Marte? Starling or Kettle? Kettle. I'll give you a hint. He's a if brave. it's just a Lindor, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> it's not. Not that good. It, okay. It's, but it's a current brave. Current brave. Is it Johan Camargo? It is not. I just kind of picked that at random. Who is it? It is Ozzy Albies. That makes sense. I can see that. Although I think Marte is a more patient hitter than Albies is. And Albies probably has a little better power. But 
I thought it was interesting. Uh, I was like, that oh. makes sense. It, it changed how I look at Albies after seeing that, where I'm like, I like Marte a lot. And if Albies gets to a fourth in MVP voting in the NL type level soon with him and Acuna and uh, the just insane contracts that they signed um, with the Braves, I, it just, it uh, it's very fun to think about Albies and Acuna for the next five years. Oh, yeah. But that's a, that's a whole different podcast. That is a whole different podcast. Well, John, I appreciate it, sir. And uh, we will talk next week. I'm good. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.